This is a Word Fitly Spoken by words about reading the Scriptures, about preaching the Scriptures, and about the mission on which the Scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi and Adam Kuntz, and we're beginning a discussion on Walter and the Means of Grace. How's it going, guys? It's going great. How are you guys? Doing well, doing well. Summer going good for everyone. Zelwyn? It's actually been relatively cool so far. It's been, and actually fairly rainy, so we're actually still green. I know that sounds unusual, but we're usually pretty dry and bleak by this time of year, so it's it's a good thing. Right. Church is busy this time of the year, even though everybody's on vacation. It's vacation Bible school, a lot of that fun stuff, and we all have kids, so we know that our vacations are never all that relaxing. So hope you guys are at least getting some rest through this season and enjoying yourselves. So yeah, so we've come here today to talk about C.F.W. Walther again, in particular his teaching on the means of grace. Why is that discussion significant for our time? Yeah, the more I read Walther, and we have been working out of Walther's pastoral theology, but I would also recommend, especially on the subjects that we're going to be covering in this episode and at least one more to come, also the volume from CPH on church fellowship. What I realize the more I read Walther is how contemporaneous many of his concerns are with our own especially what was called in the 19th century, the notion of open questions, or what Walther calls the theory of open questions, which is that there are any number of issues that many other American Lutherans decided, you know, Christians can hold widely differing views on this. It's not a big deal. And that list would be smaller or larger, kind of depending on what flavor of Lutheran you wanted to be. And I think what's distinctive about Walther and really especially helpful for our time is to understand how confused the world was theologically, politically, you could say in kind of a really comprehensive sense, ideologically in the 19th century. This is something that we don't really realize, I think, because a lot of people have some idea in their head that the farther back you go in the past, the more religious devout and orthodox everyone was. So Walther's job was just, you know, like pretty easy because he was just trying to take people who were already basically pretty orthodox and make them really, really orthodox. Yeah, the Western world was really going through some uh, turmoil at that time. Not not simply America, but even Europe. The theological landscape was was a little bit crazy in those days. And we actually have a few episodes coming up where we're going to talk about America at that time particularly the theological landscape, in pretty great detail. Right. And you you realize when you read Walther's own account of his education, even his theological education in Germany, or you think about some of the opponents that he had, especially in the German immigrant communities in some of the bigger cities in the Midwest, like St. Louis, Milwaukee, Chicago, who are openly rationalistic, openly anti-clerical, they, de- they despise the scriptures. They obviously despise the divinity of Jesus. Lots of things that are a lot more basic, maybe, you might say, than some of the questions that Walther's going to get into tonight. I think what you realize is Walther's precision 
vision, his intense clarity, not just about issues like the deity of Jesus or the inspiration of scripture over against rationalists or non-Christians among his own people, but also his precision and clarity even in smaller theological questions, more theologically fraught questions, let's say, within the Lutheran Church. He brings that precision and that clarity precisely because he needs to at his time, precisely because his time is really confusing and largely devoted to accepting confusion. And when I realized that, as I, as I thought about that, you know, and I realized what kind of a master publicist Walther was in printing the Lutheran, the newspaper, and distributing it widely in setting up the publishing house to make sure that the Missouri Synod had wide distribution of its materials and its distinctive precision and clarity. I realized that Walther is really, really helpful for our own time, precisely because he lived in a time of great confusion like our own both within his own you know, immigrant community, Germans who have taken a life and started a totally new life in a totally different land, but also just his time, both for English speakers and for German speakers, confusing, devoted largely to a cult of feelings, devoted to massive change and constant upheaval. And Walther is right there in the midst of that, being precise and being extremely clear. So when I think about that, I realize more and more, you know, when we started out this series on Walther, you know, I'm like, this is really important, you know, it, kind of in the same way that I studied, let's say, like the Constitution and civics class, right? Like, I can't say like I relished every <laughs> single second of reading the Constitution and understanding how it fit together and blah, 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 blah. But I'm glad I know that, right? I'm glad I did that. That's kind of how I thought about Walther when we started because I'd read Law and Gospel, I don't know several times, three, four times, but not a whole lot else besides church and ministry. So it seemed kind of dry, you know, it seemed kind of like of historical interest, right? So you, you know, you go to a historical site and you find out that this is the chair that Alexander Hamilton sat in, or, you know, this is what Washington did in, in his morning routine at Mount Vernon. You're like, oh, that's cool. It's not really. You go to Graceland and set where the king sat. That yeah, sort of yeah, thing. I've never, yeah, never actually done that. Well, you know, priorities, Adam, <laughs> priorities, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So we'll talk about the cult of Elvis Presley later on, probably. I'm sure that'll be a whole episode. <laughs> you know, it was kind of, it was historical interest. The more I'm reading it and the more that I'm, you know, thinking about Walther's tone and his confidence, I'm like, this is amazing. You know, where is this? Where can I find this? How can I get in line with this? And then you understand more, you know, how kind of guys who are actually sort of disconnected from him in Indiana and Michigan can be reading his newspaper and think, I got to meet this guy. I got to talk to this guy. Because as you're, as you're reading it, it's not only his ideas. It's not only his clarity and his precision about the specific issue. And we'll talk about the specific issues because we should care. We should be clear because we're Christians. So if we're doing it in God's name, we care about it. It's, it's the fact that he's clear. It's the fact that he's precise. It's the fact that he's confident. It's, it's tremendously attractive. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. And then I thought back to, you know, when I was an Episcopalian, which is the church that by God's grace, I strangely became a Christian in. I, I, think, I think despite everything that the Episcopal church was doing, they had the liturgy and, and I picked up a Bible, you know, 
But when I was an Episcopalian and I first learned about the Missouri Synod and, and I was reading just teaching on justification by faith or why the Missouri Synod doesn't ordain women or why they believe the Bible is God's word, just full stop. You know, I thought back to that time, right? And I had that same experience reading Walther now that I had then. And it was kind of amazing because when you're, when you're in the middle of it, you, it can sometimes feel like things are just a muddle, Right. But sometimes you go back to these fundamentals and you go back to these founding figures and you realize that they weren't just founding figures for some kind of dry historical reason. They were founding figures because they offered a compelling and faithful vision of what it means actually to be a Christian in a specific time and place. And these men are teaching, men like Walther are going to be teaching for the good of the church so that people would be informed and not be carried away by every wind of doctrine there's tremendous competition for the for the people in the western united states and walther's day the original west and without this well there's tremendous competition really quite honestly from new england all the way over to the other coast and without this clarity and without a clarity that is consistent people do find themselves uh, lost or estranged from the church. And Walther understood this. To be far away from the historic confession of the church, to be far away from a right interpretation of scripture, is to lose the whole thing. And this is why these guys write. It's not like some kind of theological jeopardy where you're just trying to score more points over here. Right, exactly. There's an actual Christian reason. And it's not enough to be right just for the sake of being right. These men want to teach rightly because that's the office God's placed them in, but, but but primarily they want to do it for the sake of the people that God has entrusted to them and to the church at large. That's the it's part of pastoral care. Would you agree? I, I mean I totally agree. And that's why you see together at the heart of, let's say, early Missouri, right, Walther's own lifetime in the Missouri Synod, you see these two things that people usually think are totally different from each other, right next to each other, in the same person, in the same churches, in the same synod, this ferocious commitment to clarity and purity of teaching, alongside a ferocious commitment to and confidence in proclaiming the gospel widely. Missouri is both extremely clear and extremely energetic. But go back to those three points again, because because those are very important, okay? So clarity, for the sake of what? It has to be clear, clarity and purity, but purity alone just leaves you with a private religion. Okay, you have to have purity and, like you say, clarity together so that the people may understand it. It's not enough just to be pure. It has to be taught clearly in a way that the people can understand it. And these men understood it. And that's something that we forget. There, there's, there's something, and it, this, is, this has always been that way in the church, but particularly in Walther's Day and particularly in our day, there is that quest for novelty, that desire to explain things in a way that is different from the way they were explained before, to use words that are foreign to these concepts or, or, or to speak in a high and lofty way that only edifies the speaker and not the hearer. Walter experienced this with what he saw all around uh, with the revivalists and things like that. And we experience it today. There's a whole lot of, well, actually in theological media today. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, the meme uh, of blessed memory, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> right, but but that's why we're talking about it here today because we're not primarily here just to say, "Hey, wasn't Walter doing a good work in the 1800s?" We're here to we're here today to say, "Why aren't we doing it today or where is it being done today and how can we do it today?" So, how do we recapture that kind of clarity in our own day? without falling into the trap of speaking like robots or something like that. I think that Walther has a really lively understanding of what are actually problems, whether they are, you know, especially theologically expressed problems among pastors, which is what you'll find in his convention essays, in his editorials and things like that. So those will be framed, you know, in more exalted theological terminology, and he will be very clear about them, and he will speak very clearly about them. So I think that one way to do it is not to avoid controversies, but rather to deal with them in clear terms. That is distinctive. That is all over the place when you read his writings. I think when you're looking at the pastoral theology, one thing that you come away with is his lively sense of people's needs and also what they need in terms of faithful service. So just one example, and we'll go into this later when we talk more about baptism, when he talks about the notion of people who are not sure whether or not they are baptized, the reason that Walther is so clear about unconditional baptism, not saying when you baptize, if you are not already baptized, I baptize you. Because his whole point with baptism is that baptism is a ground of certainty. Therefore, the Christian should be able to look at his baptism and say, the pastor said, I baptize you. As Christ's minister, that is a sure thing. You are, you are giving that certainty to God's child. So Walther has a lively sense of people's deep need, whether pastors in doing their theology or people in believing what their pastors say to them, whether baptizing or preaching or wherever else, he has a really lively sense of the human need for certainty in a world that doesn't provide hard, hardly any certainty at all, especially to the people he's serving. So I think that recapturing it means not being robotic in the sense of just thinking like, well, Every single problem has already been solved by C.F.W. Walther. He would not say that himself. He would not write the things that he writes if that were true. Now, one of the other important things to remember here, too, is that Walther is going to acknowledge implicitly that the way in which we talk to other theologians is different than from the way that we talk to the layman yep. or to the members of our congregations. Yep. There's a time, you know, especially um, when disputating or debating theology where the gloves can kind of come off. And we should expect to talk to each other man to man. And when you deal with the laity or the members, you really have to take that on a case-by-case -case basis and how you're dealing with personality and everything. There's kind of been a conflation of the two as if everything needs to be handled with kid gloves, you know, whether this is a big theological debate or whether we're talking to someone, you know, in a nursing home or that sort of thing. And and so in Walter's day, it was not uncommon to have healthy theological debate that would seem very contentious to us today, you know, at various district conventions or whatever. And yet for Walther's time, that's completely acceptable for men to talk to each other in this way and for men to contend earnestly for one side or the other 
and to come to a biblical understanding of an idea. We, d- we don't like honest and open debate or direct discourse anymore. Well, we seem to kind of be hashing out the same arguments over and over again. Is that a, a product of this muddledness, this lack of clarity that you're talking about in our society as a whole, or is that some other thing? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think there's at least two things at work. I think one is that we are, I think, by virtue of the media we consume and how we consume information, we are, all of us now, re- especially relative to the 19th century, unacquainted with the hard and precise thought that is required to solve, especially theological controversies. So there's simply a lack of human resources or human effort in many respects. For instance, in 1857, Synod devoted most of its convention to sorting out whether or not the president of the Western District, George Schieferdecker, taught falsely on the millennium in Revelation chapter 20. And they resolved at the end of days of debate back and forth with him that he did. And he was ejected from synod right there. And then the people who remained, which I think was almost everybody, knelt down and sang the litany together. So they they just have a different sense of the effort required and the time required to sort out what is needed to resolve theological controversies. And and the necessity. And the necessity. And I think the second thing is that if we understand every discussion to be basically a personal attack, it is impossible to sort out controversies. That's, I mean, you, you see this, for instance, in the relationship between Luther and Melanchthon. Melanchthon has, you know, misgivings about the nature of free will long before Luther dies. But because Melanchthon is, to some extent, a respecter of persons, you know, I mean, he's more polite than Luther. So let's give him credit for that. But he's a respecter of persons. So he's kind of not really willing to, ironically, to deal with his <laughs> theological disagreements with Luther while Luther is alive. And so the problem when you see everything as a personal problem is that they just fester. They never go away. Well, we know Luther didn't take anything personally, you know. Well, right. But, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't want to... Philip's, Philip's defense, there could have been an inkwell or two. Sure. Guy, yeah. But, Who knows yeah. what would have happened. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I mean... But no, no, no. You're right. If 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 a if every theological problem is thought to be at base a personal problem, then we will construct all of our theological debates and pastoral solutions around people's feelings, and there's no way that that's going to go well in the long run. But I think that that's what results when we don't seek theological clarity, which is really for the sake of people's souls. We have to stress that the clarity is not for its own sake. It's not for winning. It's for certainty and clarity for God's people. Well, with that, we're going to take our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org 
You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Delwin Heidi, Adam Coons here, talking about CFW Walther on the means of grace. And now we come to the sacrament of baptism. So guys, where do you want to start? I want to point out to start that Walther always moves in his pastoral theology, both its arrangement and also how he thinks about individual cases from the general to the particular. So he doesn't ever start out with some really detailed, difficult to adjudicate case. He never starts out with some like minutia. He always starts out with something general. So in the whole arrangement of the work, it's the same. He starts out with what he calls the chief means of grace, which is preaching. And then he moves into baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's that's just kind of a, a methodological thing. I think it I think it lends itself to being clear because you have a general principle and then you figure out different applications rather than being kind of lost in a morass of details that never coalesce into some general picture of what you're doing. So the first thing then Walter is going to focus on is the mode of baptism. And what do we mean by mode? We mean how it happens. And this is a big question, depending on what part of the country you live in. I'm sure it is important where you come from, Willie. I don't know if it matters. I don't know how much it matters in Western Iowa, but it's a big deal here whether or not you are baptized by immersion. Oh, yeah. In in Kentucky, yeah. I mean, the majority of, of churches are going to say it's not a true baptism unless you are immersed or submersed, to be more specific. So, yeah, and it's something that I think a lot of American Christians today deal with, too, more than we realize. Um, It's kind of that irony between baptism doesn't do or mean that much, but you better get the mode right. So, So these churches will, you know, these churches will say baptism doesn't do anything. It's It's important, but it doesn't actually affect anything, but it has to be done by immersion, possibly wearing gym shorts in a cattle trough. Lest it not be valid. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I mean, can I use can I use an, another kind of farm farm tank of some kind? See, that's the question. It's really the you know what's more economical, and what did the bigger the big mega church two hours away do? You know, because now they've got these like PVC structures where you put like some pool line, pool swimming pool liner around them. You know, you can make a makeshift baptistry that way. Time was, you you went down to the creek, but we got mercury now, so can't do that. Um, <laughs> so, so you know, you got to you got to improvise. But no, it's it's absolutely the case where I'm from in Eastern Kentucky. Uh, most of the churches, even even a lot of the Methodist churches, will sometimes insist on baptism by immersion. But that's usually for the sake of the conscience of those who come into the churches, because if someone came into one of those churches and, and was sprinkled then the family would say, well, you're not really baptized. Walther seems to be aware of people who are trying to counteract a focus on immersion because when he discusses, he's got three modes that he says you can do, immersion, pouring, or sprinkling. When he talks about sprinkling, he says like, you got to use like more than like one drop of water. You, you, sh- you should not, it should not be uncertain whether or not water was used on the person. <laughs> sure. So it's, it's kind of interesting because it sounds like there's somebody that at least he's aware of who's like, oh, you baptized by immersion? Well, I almost don't use any water. You know, he's, he's I mean, I, and this is something that we picked up in the last episode. Like, it's like, this is the kind of what we do with booze, right? We go, okay, God has permitted this. And 
somebody over here is going to say, I don't believe it's Christian to drink at all. And so we drink an entire jug of old crow and uh, sort of, <laughs> you know, fall asleep. <laughs> that is the most disgusting thing that's ever been said on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but we, don't, we don't do it except to signal our superior doctrine and theology and piety or lack thereof. So it's kind of one of those things, I'm sure. A lot of practice develops out of, oh, what's the word I want to use? <laughs> out of spite. Yeah, spite, exactly. Yeah, and he's he's totally aware of that. I mean, if you have an image of Walther that's like, he was unaware of how people are, or a, he was unaware of going overboard or something. I mean, you can listen to our last episode as well, but he's very well aware of people's propensity to take the truth and to push it in an absurd manner, even to the extent of almost not using any water when baptizing. He he seems to recommend pouring and plenty of water for his own practice, not just kind of dabbing them. Yeah, and it's it's kind of important to remember too, our definitions of these have shifted ever so slightly in a hundred years or so too. You know, sprinkling probably well we you know, what we would do at our churches is sometimes called sprinkling, but it it's quite different from actual sprinkling. It's closer to pouring, but not quite like pouring a whole, you know, pitcher or something like that in, in many cases. Right. Right. So so the definitions have, sh- have in some cases shifted just a little bit. In old church manuals, sometimes immersion would actually refer to the method where you're submerged up to say your your abdomen or maybe right. up to your chest and then the rest is poured over. Today we think of immersion exclusively as dunking. And it could mean that in older texts too. So you know, just to muddy the waters here, just saying, <laughs> it gets it gets a little tricky. So Wal- Walther makes it pretty simple for us and just simply says, these three modes are correct, but use plenty of water. Or these three modes are valid, but use plenty of water. Now, does that preclude the use of oils and those sorts of things as kind of a pre-baptismal ritual? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's he's got a whole separate section on baptismal customs. It is notable that his concern in baptism is not so much to provide an impressive spectacle as to follow the divine institution, which is why he's got a much longer section and a much more positive, extensive discussion of what the divine name is and how it is to be used in baptism than he does about a variety of what he calls customs and under which heading, and we'll talk about it later, he doesn't really talk about, you know, oils or this is this or that. It's also notable. I mean, Walther is alive long before the liturgical movement. So it's not even an emphasis that he really has to deal with. Like what level of ritual should I have? He's not really concerned about it. Yeah. And it's almost as if he's trying to insist that the word have primacy here. Totally. Because yeah, well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) he's already said, you know, preaching is the chief means of grace. So when he comes to baptism, he's most concerned about people who are somehow altering the institution of baptism, and thereby totally invalidating it. Right. So let's, let's dive right into that then. So the usage of the divine name. Yeah. So I mean, if you read Acts, right, you're going to come up with the idea that people are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I mean, I'll turn it over to you, Willie. Your your knowledge of usually mostly Southern Protestant sects is much more extensive than my own. But my sense here is that Walther's permission, which he gets from the Orthodox Lutheran fathers, of baptism, which is not which is not a formula in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
that being okay, Walther is okay with baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus, as long as there's a Trinitarian sense to what's happening there. Yeah, because I mean, that that's not necessarily something we would advocate for today. No. You know, we, t- we, we tend to simply say that that when they, when Acts says in baptize in the name of Jesus Christ, it's, it's actually referring to the Trinitarian formula, kind of looking back to the Great Commission, because that is his name. I mean, that's kind of, that's the way we typically go around it. I, I don't, I don't think you would find any LCMS pastor today who would be comfortable giving the thumbs up to baptizing in the name of the Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, for Walther, I mean, the point is, in what sense are they being baptized and, and in whose name? And and that's significant because you actually can have a quote-unquote Trinitarian formula and have an invalid baptism. And that's what he's talking about. So the Mormons, right. for example, are going to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be a valid baptism because they don't believe in anything resembling the biblical God. Jehovah's, uh, not Jehovah's Witnesses, but Oneness Pentecostals who... They come about quite a while after Walter, although there are sects who practice what they do early on, who baptize in the name of Jesus, but they do not believe in the Trinity. So there's no sense in which that could ever be considered a valid baptism. He mentions Unitarians here who believe in absolutely nothing for all intents and purposes. So they get in the list. It is significant, (laughs) I think, that he mentions Campbellites by name. And there are a couple other groups, but yeah, Campbellites and similar groups not belonging to Christianity. The Campbellites are of particular significance, not because of my personal bias as a <laughs> Southerner, but but so they actually do get their start kind of in your neck of the woods, and then they quickly move south. They basically, they're in the Pennsylvania area and some of the surrounding colonies, well, states. Uh, they're basically kicked out of the Presbyterians, kicked out of the Baptists, and then sort of do their own thing. But they're one of the most successful Christian primitivist groups of their time and really on into today. So the idea then for them is that they are restoring biblical Christianity, that it was gone and now we are restoring it and raising it back up. Now that sounds pretty much like any other second grade awakening sect that we know. The difference between the Campbellites and say the Mormons or the Mormons are very successful, but they're still seen as very outrageous. The Campbellites, the real danger there is, is they sound a lot just like uh, the run-of-the-mill Baptist. And as a matter of fact, Boyce, you know, the famous Baptist, said we're lucky that Alexander Campbell, where Campbellism gets its name from, didn't have a seat in one of our universities because Baptist Christianity would have just been completely eviscerated by it. That's neither here nor there. The point is there are groups that are coming along and saying this is true Christianity, and a group like the Campbellites are going to use traditional terms and mean something completely different. But the Mormons do it too, but the Mormons are not as palatable to normal Americans as the Campbellites are. So the Campbellites come into Kentucky and they join up with Barton W. Stone. That eventually breaks up. But these huge revivals, and I mean, we're talking hundreds of churches founded just in maybe 15 years. I mean, huge success in in, uh, Tennessee, Texas, Missouri. So this is bumping right up into where you have a lot of German immigrants too. And this is what you have. You have these groups that are seeking to lure the Lutherans away. And what do they say? We have similar terminology, but we have rediscovered this, and this is what you're doing wrong. So they're going to say, your baptism's wrong, this, that, or the other. 
And so for Walther, their attitude and their sort of redefining of Christianity is completely unacceptable and invalidates their sacraments. And I don't think I'm putting too fine a point on it there. No, because his right because his point about baptism not being magic is a point about how God's word can be misused and thereby, and it's a word that, that you used, I think it's a good word, eviscerated, that the sacrament is not truly a sacrament, even if the correct words are used, because it's not a magical formula. Yeah, it's not an incantation. That's right. That's right. It's it's the group specifically. So Walther says, like, you know, if if the minister is, for whatever reason, unbelieving, but the church is Trinitarian, it's a baptism. You know, that that's that's the anti-Donatist point, that the sacrament right, right. is not invalidated by the unbelieving man administering it. But if the group it you know, into whom the church into whom one is baptized is anti-Trinitarian, then a Trinitarian formula could be used all day long and it still would not be a baptism. Yeah. And and it's so important though that that we talk about this because it's not something that you would see in Europe quite like you would see here in Walther's day. No, I mean, no. I'm, I'm sure you have some of the Anabaptist groups and things like that, but we can't underestimate the explosion of new sects that come about in America at that time, and to a lesser extent, England. Uh, we cannot underestimate that and just how dangerous that was for the Christians. And I think Walther understood that. There can be no hand of fellowship extended to these groups. Because there is no Christianity in there. there. Christ is not within these groups. And the list goes on and on, you know, without getting too particular. But these are very new things. And I think that speaks to Walther's awareness of the theological landscape. You don't see Walther trying to fight controversies that are 15, 20 years old, even though media moved a lot slower in those days. Walther's very much has his finger on the pulse of the other publishers, which is significant because it was often said at that time that the publishers were the bishops, referring to any other group. He seems to be reading his opponents too, which is important, because you have to know your enemy. He didn't, He's not really getting things through a filter so much. He seems to understand and, and sees the danger here, which we've got to give him that. I mean, that's part of the pastoral call. Yeah, that, and I, I want to throw this open to you guys. This is something that I was wondering about in my area. South Central Pennsylvania is kind of the epicenter of colonial era Lutheranism. And so we have a lot of ELCA churches. We have a lot of UCC churches, which were also German colonists. Yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, yeah, United Church of Christ is actually old German reformed, right? Right. Yeah, in my area, right? Yeah. In New England they'd be congregationalists, but here it was German reformed. But the thing the thing that I the thing that I wonder about, and I don't I don't wonder about this so much for folks who were baptized, I don't know, in, you know, certainly not in like 1962 or something. I wonder about this notion of the the profession of a church and and a church's trinitarianism. I, I am not I'm not sure like when that stops being true for churches for whom Trinitarianism is somewhere on the books, but but <laughs> right. but but certainly not not taught robustly. Well and they've and they've long ago authorized other forms of baptism right. in different names. Right. Right. Yeah, it's a it's a very difficult pastoral question. Yeah. I always check I always check with folks coming from other churches, you know. How were you baptized? When? Where? And and I've never I've never had a you know I was baptized in the name of the mother, 
the word and the, you know, the spirit or something. I still haven't had one of those, but I wouldn't be surprised if I did. And I, and I, and I wonder at what point one considers a church to be anti-Trinitarian or non-Trinitarian. I don't, I, I know that Zelwyn has thought about this, but I don't know if either of you guys have thoughts about that. Yeah. Zellin, what is the definitive answer? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to have a definitive answer because I think what you're getting at is the disconnect between maybe the local congregation and the official church body, which often occurs. Because like, for example, I live in the, the heart of what used to be ALC country, which we have a lot of ELCA churches here. And a lot of these churches that are still around uh, possess what I would consider to be relatively, I guess, for the lack of a better word, conservative Christians. You know, they they believe in the Trinity. They believe in uh, what they were taught about baptism all those years ago. Right. But now they have a church body, which is largely leaving them behind, even though they are still you know, holding on to these beliefs. And so at what point does can you consider the local congregation to be Trinitarian as opposed to a, a church body which has officially rejected it, I think is not an easy question. Yeah. So, I mean, localism, as always, is kind of the key, in, in you know, like in all sectors. I I think I think the way that you approach it, though, Adam, is probably the really the only way you can. I mean, you have to, to approach it on an individual basis and say, you know, what is it that you actually believe? I know that kind of panders a little bit to the the individualistic uh, nature we already have, but I just don't see how you can get away from having to teach people about these things without just assuming too much. Right. Well, you certainly can't assume anything today. And, you know, that's the thing. Even if you get a baptismal certificate that says in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as the years go on in these groups and in these denominations, you know, is that really reflective of what actually happened at the font? Yeah, because like in the in the 19th century, the Unitarians were really clear, like, we believe Arius was right, you know? <laughs> right, right. We don't believe that Jesus is divine. He might be God's son, but that doesn't mean what you yeah. think it means. They were clear about it. Today, it's kind of like you're trying to spot a, a, a randomly and quickly moving target of when does a church become actually not Christian anymore and how do I sort how do I sort that out from a local congregation of such that's the fruit the fruit of wicked ecumenism because that's what it's done in the old days everybody did their own thing held their own confession heretic or orthodox but once the ecumenical era moved in everything began to get really soft and malleable and so nobody really wanted to talk about these distinctives and really kind of wanted to downplay and pretend as if uh, everything was really okay. Nobody wanted, I mean, even the Unitarians had the gall or had the, the gumption to say, we reject the entirety of historic Christianity. Right. Come join the Unitarians. Right. Yeah. And today it says, no, 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 we're all the same or not the Unitarians, but these heterodox groups, they say, no, we all, we're all the same and we don't believe anything and we never have, and we all don't believe anything together. So let's just come on and just join and be one group. Cause it's okay because we're all Christian, right? And apologies, you know, to I don't want to say mere Christianity, that gives it the wrong idea, but that's all that, 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 that ecumenism has done. And it doesn't really serve the church very well. Cooperation for the sake of cooperation has only 
it's not only compromised our witness, but it's completely muddied the waters as far as confidence, uh, the confidence for the layman to say, I mean, we're here talking about a, a person who doesn't know if they've truly been baptized simply because those in power want to put a good face on for the world and say, hey, look, we're all getting along. And it's like, I'd like to buy the world a Coke, you know, that commercial or something like that. <laughs> because in, in this attempt to pretend as if we all get along and if we're, and that we're all the same, they've completely destroyed the faith of thousands of Christians in the United States. And on that note... Not to find a point on it. <laughs> not to put too find a point on it. And on that note, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. We'll be back in just a few moments. A Word Fitly Spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Kuntz talking about C.F.W. Walther and baptism. Moving on after our lively couple segments here to who should be baptized? Who are the subjects of baptism? So what do you guys think? Uh, I think... I think I'll take my interview skills from Larry King. Yeah, basically basically nobody should be baptized. Nobody's worthy. (laughs) (laughs) No, he, you know, Walter has what what sounds, I think, at first like a kind of pointless, you know, qualification. But he says all unbaptized adults and all unbaptized children. But I think part of that is the idea that the Lutheran church, you don't need to be re-baptized. And I want to just put this in some really clear context for you guys. This is not just about Baptists or, you know, Campbellites and people like that. It is. But it's also about the idea which, you know, the the Catholic Church believes seemingly nothing anymore, uh, except what is in its own economic self-interest. In that time, you had to be rebaptized in order to become Roman Catholic. And there was a professor from Concordia Seminary St. Louis, Edward Preuss, uh, who was who left his position at the seminary and was rebaptized. So the idea is that the Lutheran church is not sectarian and does not rebaptize people who have been validly baptized by another Christian church. So I, d- I just want to say that because that, that's really important. There's, there's often this misconception that the Missouri Synod somehow believed that it was the only saving church they never said that, which is why we're only baptizing unbaptized adults and children. And point of order, we don't believe in rebaptism. If ever someone is baptized for a second time, it's because they didn't have a valid baptism in the first place. So they were. That's that's right. You know, it was not a baptism. Yeah. Right. 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 We, so there is no rebaptism not, in the, in right. the Lutheran church. Right. Exactly. So when he talks about baptism, he talks about adults who are unbaptized who desire it and who possess a knowledge of salvation and confess the true faith in faith and life. So that's basically the idea that before baptizing adults, they are prepared for baptism. They are taught the faith prior to baptism. 
and that if they're somehow uncertain whether or not they were baptized, they should simply be baptized after instruction, after preparation, in order to completely erase any uncertainty about their baptism. All right. Now, what about the children? Yeah, the children, that's kind of a little more complex, right? Because what's what's not complex is the idea that we're baptizing children. Walther takes it as a given, but it's a given if they are brought by those who possess parental authority over them and who are not members of a different parish. So I want to do that last thing first and then talk about who possesses authority because that's Walther's got a long list of who does. The idea of not baptizing members of a different parish is basic pastoral consideration. I don't really have this problem so much being in the midst of no other Missouri Synod Lutherans for like 45 minutes to an hour in any direction. But if you're listening and you are, and you're a pastor or you're a member and you're, you know, you got a bunch of LCMS churches around, not to speak of churches of other confessions, you know, if somebody just shows up at my church, they could be a Baptist, they could be a Presbyterian, they could be whatever. I'm going to wonder, like, are you coming here validly? Are you fleeing some situation that you need to deal with, with your pastor that you're coming from, right? So Walther does not want pastors to basically act like they are, I don't know, just salesmen. And so driving up sales in any regard, baptizing anybody who shows up is good. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't act that way. So he especially doesn't want one parish taking potential new members from another parish and not thinking twice about it. So that, that's, that's, Something that he assumes, he doesn't explain it in tons of detail, but it's but it's there. His discussion about parental authority is interesting just because of the categories that he's got. And you guys have these in the show notes. I think there's some room for debate about some of this, but it's interesting. Children may be baptized under the authority of the mother alone, foster parents, step parents, adoptive parents, legal guardians. And then he's got some other cases that we can talk about. But I mean, do you guys have any reservations or had you thought about or have you dealt with any cases that would fall into the stuff that I just read? Yeah, the only thing you could think that would be controversial for a lot of people might be foster parents. Right. Or perhaps legal guardians. Right. And I think the state, you know, could have issues, you know, in our day, like with foster parents doing it or something like that. You know, a step parent, you know, that's an authority. Uh, the mother alone, I think people might quibble with, but then they might not because that's often the case with a lot of baptisms. Legal guardians, okay. Uh, I think the meat, though, are in the other categories. Well, before we before we get to those other special categories, though, I mean, I think it's it's I think this desire comes out of uh, the earlier discussion we had about wanting to avoid a magical view of baptism. The idea that if we could just bring in children from anywhere, bless a, a tank in a in a in a plane that's going overhead, and then just you know baptize everybody in the city block, kind of a thing, and then they're all going into heaven. I don't know what you want to call that the Charlemagne approach to things. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it, it get it gets a little touchy because I I think most of our ancestors it it may have gone down that way for many of them, so. Uh, yeah, enough. I mean that's it's yeah, an interesting ahead. thing because like, and at least up until like the fifties or sixties, you could still get this, or you could still like send money off to certain Roman Catholic ministries, and they'd send you a certificate where they'd baptized a pagan baby, uh, thanks to your donation. 
<laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. You're it literally right. says yeah. pagan baby. Do you? Ha- how many do you have? Yeah, well, you know, you got to spend your money somewhere. Anyway, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's what it's trying to avoid is this idea that if we just baptize them and never see them again, that that's somehow still going to be a faithful use of this sacrament. Yeah, as if the church roster equates to the Lamb's Book of Life, that kind of idea. Oof, yeah. That uh, just getting them on there. I mean, that's, you know, because that's the case. You baptize them and send it into the church records, and then you close it up and maybe never see them again. Which happens, but that's not what we want to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, it's why we want to avoid spontaneous or novelty baptisms, I would suppose. So at least under the authority of some sort of parental figure, you are dealing with, like kind of what you were saying, this I, this hope, this expectation that they're actually going to be taught, that they're actually going to still be coming to church, that they're going to be raised in the faith. And it's not just a, a drive-by and you know hope for the best, but rather that they're actually going to continue to be in the church. Yeah, with that reasonable expectation. Right. Mm -hmm. Because frankly, someone who is baptized and then falls away, I mean, if we're going to be biblical about it, actually stands under a stricter judgment. I mean, is that fair or is that going too far? (laughs) Yeah, no, I I think you're right. I mean, and and I want to stress that, and, and Willie touched on this a little bit, that Walther nowhere says that somebody who just sort of temporarily is interested in Christianity has his kid baptized and and it's all very temporary and it doesn't matter because even with foster parents, the legal relationship there is different than it is now. It's not nearly so temporary. I have a lady in my congregation who she's now a, she's now a shut-in, but she and her husband met in Walther League. She was never actually adopted by the family that raised her. So those were her foster parents who brought her to baptism and sent her to Lutheran school all the way through high school. And it, so it was, Walther is nowhere envisioning a temporary relationship between the person who brings the child for baptism and the child's relationship to the church. It's, it's all a, a binding, lasting pledge by the one with authority to raise the child in the faith. Yeah, I mean, does that, I mean, does that, Makes sense, Selwyn. I mean, I, I no, it does. I, I, think, it I does. think we're all familiar with drive-by baptisms, right? Sure. Unfortunately, yes, and that's and that's why I'm just trying to emphasize that too, is because to to have known that grace and to just treat it like a drive-by, like to like Willie put it, to be entered into the church rolls, is to take a actually a fairly low view of baptism. I mean, to treat it as if it was just putting you onto the Lamb's Book of Life and that's all you needed to do. You know, a flippant kind of mm-hmm. view of it, sure. And I think I think that's evident when we when we pray in the baptismal rite that the child would be kept safe and secure in the holy ark of the Christian church, being separated from the multitude of unbelievers. So baptism is God's grace shed out, poured out upon this child, a washing of regeneration and renewal. But that very washing is itself a separation from the world, which entails a certain way of life in the same way that Noah's salvation entailed, you know, you got to be in the ark, you know, you can't just step out of the ark and expect to be saved. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I think that it, when we are, when, when a child is brought to baptism, that is 
that is both a grace and a weight on that child. And the child has to be taught the faith in order to bear the weight of that cross. Yeah, and we don't think about the obligation much, you know, on behalf of the one being baptized, even though there are all these vows and everything that are being said for the child. But it's very much um, an entrance into this relationship with God. And it's not mere symbolism or ceremony. What happens in baptism is real. And that seal placed upon you is real. And what that seal communicates, you know, the remission of sins, but also now you are engrafted into the church. That That is a, not an insignificant thing. That said, let's take a very brief look then at the other categories, just for fun. <laughs> well, we, we said all this, and then we find that Walther says that children may be baptized under the authority of parents who have fallen away from the faith, who are under excommunication, or who belong to heterodox confessions. Yeah, and that's one, you know, you, you do you do get mixed answers on it sometime. And on the one hand, you're just happy that the parents who have fallen away from the faith want to see their child baptized. Exactly. Uh, yeah, or under excommunication, or under heterodox confessions. And of course, that one you're going to ask, well, why do you want this? And it could right. be a why case, are you, here? That, you know, right. and who knows what the case is. I don't want to speculate. And then you have the last category, or one of the last categories here, uh, masters of slave children, uh, to put us into a, a bit of a different historical context. And the, uh, we're already getting letters right now, I'm sure. <laughs> Actual physical letters, yes. <laughs> but it, it shouldn't it shouldn't give us give us pause here. I mean, that's an understanding of authority. You know that that's how that it is conceptualized. That the master is 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 the master. So it was not uncommon to have slave children baptized. In the cotton states, as you want to say, uh, that was a very common practice. Typically, uh, the slave would be taught the religion of the master or the master's household. Now, we think of it in terms of American slavery, but, you know, if you look at something like Acts 16, the way the word household is used, it's not a foregone conclusion that the servants of the house were baptized when the rest of the family was baptized. I mean, the word oikos means more than just the nuclear family. It has it has the servants and other things in mind. You see that when it's used with Pharaoh's house and, and, and some things like that. So that kind of concept I don't think is entirely foreign uh, to the Bible and certainly not foreign to Christian thinking throughout the years. It's simply foreign to us because, I don't know about you two guys, but you know my family no longer owns slaves. <laughs> and so it's just not something that we deal with. But it shouldn't really give us pause. It's just... It's that's the historical context, and that's historically the way it's been seen uh, when it came to baptism. Maybe what you kind of hinted at there is really the the better way to look at this is the the broader understanding of the household in the biblical sense, because we tend to so narrowly define households today sure. uh, in terms of like you know a mother and a father having authority over their children, and you know. Grandparents don't have that authority, you know, uncles don't have that authority, whatever. It's just mom and dad. But in the biblical sense, I mean, Abraham is worried that Eleazar, who's not even a blood relative, is going to become the heir of his house. And so it's the idea that it is a much broader conception, and that would include many of these other relationships that will, are, no really are in existence in our own situation today. Yeah, and, and you have, you know, talk of servants and, and religious instruction even within the catechism. So it's not entirely, you know, foreign. And I thank you for commenting, Zelman, because for a second there, I thought that the Yankee 
and the Scandinavian, we're going to make the Southern guy answer all these questions here. So good. That's for, that's for I mean, you know, You're well. I have to go put my linen suit on and get my mint julep, you know, before I can properly answer this. Yeah, you're just, you're just on the wrong side of history, bro. <laughs> that's what they keep telling me. Uh, yeah, in my right. life. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I think that the point about historical context also applies to parents who have fallen away from the faith under excommunication, heterodox confessions, because sometimes one of the difficulties with reading Walther is that he is citing things from previous centuries, previous times and places. And like, if you're citing something that was produced under a state church model where the Orthodox Lutheran pastor is the default Christian minister in a place and someone, you know, hasn't been to church in a long time or someone did something bad, but still lives in the same village or somebody has been sort of flirting with an itinerant, you know, Moravian evangelist or something, but then comes to (laughs) your church to have his child baptized. That is much more pastorally significant, I think, than in a free religious marketplace like like you have in America, they're just church shopping or they figure you're going to be able to do this faster or in a more convenient way in the same way that people will church shop for weddings. Yeah, and it's exceedingly rare today because if someone's excommunicated, they'll often just go to another church that'll have them. And unfortunately, they'll often go to another church in the same fellowship. You know, that's not a, that's Which a goes back to that different that, parish yeah. thing. Yeah, right. exactly. And, you know, and we've talked a lot about that in previous broadcasts, especially in the Gerberding episodes about unity among the the brotherhood of the pastors and that sort of thing. And, right. you know, here's a here's a practical example there. And this all boils down to then we baptize in all of these cases, so long as there's reasonable hope that the children will be raised and instructed in the faith. And and so the categories are really rather broad with that one strict caveat. And that's so, right. you know, and yeah. I think that, that that's reasonable there. So let's that's move right. on now then to baptismal customs. This is a very interesting discussion and something that we, you know, debate about a lot. We, we tend to see it more in weddings these days than anything and exactly. all the silly, silly stuff associated. But but baptism, you know, it can have some some quirks and debates in that ritual, too. So what is what does Walter have to say? Well, he starts out with a kind of a fun story about a pastor of his acquaintance back in Saxony who absolutely refused to do a baptism for a child named after a traveling Italian showman named Rinaldo Rinaldini. I love that the name survives in this tale, too. Yeah, right? Isn't that great? And the pastor (laughs) forced them to pick what he described as a serious Christian name. Oh yeah, well you know it kind of reminds me the Puritans would do this and the and the Calvinists he's had this in Geneva where they would want to be named after you know some you know Roman Catholic saint you know right. I want this it wants to be Francis and then the pastor would take him and I baptize you Abraham right yeah uh, <laughs> yeah you can tell Huguenots because they ha- they actually have Old Testament names as opposed to right. <laughs> right yeah so no no giving of foolish names and and Walter takes a pretty firm line on that it's it's kind of interesting uh, he's like you're ruining the kid's life that's trust <laughs> me my name's Willie guys it's not William I understand how um, many but... <laughs> how many episodes in are we and it took us that long to reveal that yeah no his, no, his actual name is Guillermo. <laughs> He, he we had that. to change it at Ellis Island. No, right. um, Ellis Island, but yeah. but no, there is there is some. <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> there is something to be said about 
careful how you name them babies. Yeah. I mean, my, my name's Adam, so I feel like I'm not the guy to blow off steam about giving a foolish names. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> pretty, I feel comfortable with this. But yeah. And then he goes through the whole baptismal rite. And, and it very much resembles the one that if, you know, if you are a Missouri Synod Lutheran, you're going to find in, in Lutheran service book. And he evaluates the parts. So he talks about the sign of the cross being made on the one to be baptized and how that has actual apostolic sense. It makes sense to mark the Christian with the sign of the cross in the same way he loves the the custom of saying, the Lord preserve your, your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Then he goes into the question of exorcism. This is an optional rite in the modern Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I don't know enough about our history, and I don't have my German hymnal with me tonight to say whether or not there was an exorcism in the baptism in the German language period in in the Missouri Synod. Walther is a little ambivalent about exorcism in baptism. One little historical nugget that he points out is that Luther's baptism booklet was omitted from the Book of Concord, although originally attached to the small catechism because of the absence of exorcism in certain Lutheran lands, mainly the Rhineland. It is significant that exorcism is optional, but the renunciation of the devil and confession of faith are essential. That's right. Yeah. 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 Because he understands he, he understands it to have a lot more sense that you renounce the devil and confess the faith in the baptismal rite, and that that, along with the actual baptizing with water in the triune name, those two things are absolutely essential, the, the, renunciate, the combined renunciation, confession, and then the baptizing. The other things are like, okay, but about exorcism, he's kind of uncertain, and he quotes Gerhard, John Gerhard, this way, um, you can do an exorcism, but, quote, since, however, the words are somewhat harsh, and without an explanation of basically how this signifies the depth of original sin. It implies the child's being possessed in a certain way from which freedom is procured through that ceremony, which is not understood to be true. So if you're doing the exorcism in order to express the depth of original sin, fine. But if you're doing it and you're just kind of like you're just doing it because you want to, and it's especially that it's not understood by the congregation, it gives the idea like somehow the child is like literally possessed by a demon. Right. And it can become a bit superstitious. That's right. And Walter says yeah. that can't be true. And he points out, and this is, I, I want you to know, like he, you know, he sees the historical, you know, movement of this. He says, exorcism originates in baptizing the actually possessed in the early church and then right. gets transferred to all baptisms. So it's not, strictly speaking, necessary for the baptism of like a child of Christian parents. Well, guys, we're going to wrap it up here. Any last words? I think that all the stuff that we've talked about should drive you, I hope, into Walther's pastoral theology and beyond that into his writings. I think whether you are a pastor or you are a parishioner, this is going to be really helpful and fruitful for you. I think it will also give you a lively sense of the need for clarity in everything that we do as, as the church. All right. Well, Zoan, Adam, always a pleasure. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like and want to check out more, check us out. Wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or check us out on Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills. God love you and God bless.